you know, it's actually kind of difficult to speak into a microphone with a beard because I feel like my beard is trying to eat the microphone. Do you think it could be, do you think we're experiencing beard interference? It could be beard. That's a inner beardance. Uh huh. Like, we might not realize it, but like, just our, our beard is like touching the microphone because we're doing the three finger. Oh, yeah. And so maybe it's just maybe it's just beard interference. Yeah, because I mean they're good, but mm-hmm. I don't know if they can handle this much beard. Mm-hmm. That's, did you do you still have the boxes that they came in possibly? Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Alright, so what have you guys been up to? Oh, gosh. We had our five-day uh, diaconate retreat. Yeah, we're on, the, we're on the other side of our canonical retreat. Oh, nice. Man. Yeah. It's yeah. on the up and up. How's that feeling? Good. Thoughts, feelings, I mean, desires. It, thoughts. Um, <laughs> thoughts. It was an incredible experience. I think probably the coolest place on earth that you could possibly do a, any type of ordination prep retreat. Mm-hmm. I really couldn't think of a better place. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. And the weather was good. And we were with brothers. Abbot Vincent came over and gave our retreat. And Jesus showed up. It was interesting. We had a, I think, uh, like a very graceful combo after the retreat. It was very unique because we were rooming together, and even even here, it was like, I think it's safe to say, like we, the two of us, had very different retreats. Like I think they were both very good from like what we shared with each other, um, but afterwards it was it was cool honestly to hear about yours Mets because it was like radically different yeah. than mine yeah. and so um I guess a brief like synopsis of mine was I mean I had literally like just sent out like ordination invites and stuff like that before and so I was kind of prepping for I don't know I just thought it would be like very intense and I was pretty fired up to be on the Mount of Beatitudes and uh, so that's where you prepping. are right now. You're in you're in Galilee. We're on the Mount of Beatitudes yeah. right now. Yeah, wow. like no when exaggeration. We, when we no wonder the Wi-Fi is so good, dude. God was there. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. That's science. Exactly. <laughs> that's yeah. act, that's actual science. This is our first podcast from the Mount of Beatitudes. Yeah. yeah. Maybe the first podcast ever done in Galilee. I doubt that. To the United States. You let me finish. No. You have to let me finish yeah. I'm talking, okay? So you can open up the curtains to our window, and then we're looking at the Church of the Mount of Beatitudes. And it's like some crazy paradise out here. I don't even know what I'm waking up to half the time. There's exotic parrots flying around, palm trees, yep. Sea of Galilee in the backdrop. It's incredible. Galilee is I could live in Galilee the rest of my life. Yep. It is so baller. Yep. Um, we've kind of been all around like the region at this point. And um, so, sorry, I just got a text from my sister. Um, anyway, 
back to the the retreat. Long story short, I thought it would be like very intense. I thought some stuff with yeah, just like ordination would come up of like I don't know. I mean, just the finality. I'm within two months now. Did you get your invite, by the way? I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Planning on being there. Uh oh. Can you hear me? That's like. Hello. Hello. You there? Yeah, I can hear you guys. Oh yes. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, whatever. Yeah. I can okay. hear you now. Now anyway, know, now anyway long story so short. Where did you where did you stop hearing us? I, I heard everything you said. You stopped hearing me. So you asked me, did I get my invitation? And I said yes. Okay, good, good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I thought all this stuff was going to come up, like celibacy, old girlfriends, girls that I love, just like the promise kind of setting, setting in, um, etc. And first day... I tried to like root all this stuff up and kind of like force what I wanted for the retreat. And it was just like clear as like anything I've experienced of like my heart was just completely settled. Um, it's like a very easy first day and all that stuff. It was just kind of like it just like like passed on. Um, and so the retreat for me was just literally like time with my friend Jesus, like kind of getting to know his home country and like things that he saw and did and and towards the end like some pretty big um i don't know just like graces came up some healing and like just felt very confirmed um with ordination so so close that like this is it so it was like it was a very simple and like easy retreat Mm. for me um so I just kind of jammed on like the flow of the day. Like we would watch movies with Abbott Vincent in the evenings and I would go to those and I didn't know Abbott Vincent that well before this retreat, but I just found him to be delightful. It's like this old, uh, Abbott that is still full of life and a lot of joy for the priesthood. And, um, did he say hi to you guys for me? Uh, he definitely yes. did. Oh yeah. For <laughs> no, you mentioned sure. That's such an uh, odd assignment when you see somebody before they're going to go see somebody else, you know, You're like say hello mm-hmm. for me. And then to, I think there's a Seinfeld bit about that. People who actually check up to see, did you say hi for me? <laughs> Why don't well, you hey, just would call you, him? When you see Abbott Vincent, tell him we said, Hey, yeah. Hey, when, yeah, please. <laughs> okay. That'd be, that'd be great. That would be hilarious. So actually. to sum mine up, it was just like, maybe the grace of the retreat was just like feeling very confirmed that I'm never going to be alone. Like mm-hmm. this relationship with Jesus is real, with the saints is real. And even like the people in my life, like life is going to take a lot and there's going to be loss and crosses and all kinds of stuff that I can't foresee. And, um, like it's just, it's going to be okay. Cause I'm never going to be alone. So it turned into like the flow of the retreat was just like rejuvenating and simple and like very light for me. So it was a unique retreat in that. So even at meals, like the last couple of days we would, um, like talk at, talk at meals. And, um, so I just like delighted in the guys and it was kind of like just a good spot that no one was on my nerves or whatever, like all this kind of human level stuff just in a sense, like came together and is able to just kind of like sit back and kick it. And, uh, it was just a lot of grace from, from that. And yeah. 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 And, and the, so it was super interesting to hear afterwards, um, like Rob's 
Rob's retreat specifically because we do live together. We've lived together for what is it, five weeks now? Yeah, five weeks, same mm-hmm. room. You know, sleeping basically side by side right here in the room. Did you get uh, the hot water maker for the coffee? Yes, we did. We did. Yeah, that's so clutch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, we couldn't do it without it. Honestly. Yeah. It took a couple of attempts. It's it's kind of been fun slash frustrating to communicate <laughs> uh, coffee thoughts, needs, and desires to people who don't, don't speak English. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nice to have that. Like, even if you can't control much because you're on a trip and you're not at home, you can at least control when and where you get your caffeine. Sure. That's very no, true. No, first, we have the routine is great. First one up, first, even before the lights go on, you flip on the hot water here. Yeah get the coffee going mm-hmm. yeah amen that that's actually been a, a really big grace is kind of like you said with all the human stuff coming together mm-hmm. on your retreat is a lot of this pilgrimage i think has just been simplified because i think a lot of the human elements like the schedule of our days rob and i are on the same page and so we we generally wake up at the same time we have the same like major habits you know drinking coffee showering laundry like the yeah. kind of the key parts of the day we we're doing the same thing and so it just kind of makes things easier they're just yeah because we're, we're doing the same thing but the retreat so mine was actually very different and from basically the beginning of the retreat like our first day we were asked to have it in complete silence and i just was like very sucked into that very drawn into that and just felt an invitation to, to go deeper and to remain in silence. And so it was difficult for me when we came out of that as a retreat, like as a group, um, because I felt called to, to kind of to stay there. So um, it was tough because in one sense, I felt like, yeah, this is definitely where the Lord is calling me. And in prayer, feeling very affirmed and very peaceful and like a lot of life in prayer around this idea of silence, but then I would come out and all my brothers, all my, you know, the other pilgrims that are here with me, um, they were like laughing and joking and talking and having a great time and like really been there before. Yeah. Just loving each other's company. And so I felt like a, like a ding dong, like a pietistic ding dong of like, Oh no, I just like, I'm trying to do my own thing. I wish I could be with the group and and I remember Father Sywick, he always had this image of um, what hell is like, where it's it's like you're at a party, but you're the guy just standing in the corner refusing to have fun with everybody. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, am I that guy? <laughs> am, am I at the party and like I'm just refusing to talk to people? Um, but just through a series of like just overwhelming grace, the Lord made it very clear that yeah, I was just called to live a, a little bit different retreat. And actually, I actually asked Abbot Vincent, can we have a quiet table at meals? And a number of guys, we would just eat in silence. And um, it was pretty simple. Like, after I, I kind of voiced that tension, it made things just much more free and mm. um, and just open to having confidence in the retreat that I wasn't trying to fight and do my own thing, that it actually was from the Lord. And Eventually, like just to not get into too many um, grace-filled details, but one of the big things that I ended up doing was um, praying a lot with celibacy and giving up. I asked the Lord to reveal marriage, like the ideal of marriage that I had or what marriage would have been like if I had had it. And he, he did in a lot of ways. He 
revealed a lot of things through memory, but then also like, I think things that I hoped for and longed for and really desired in the companionship of another in the form of marriage. And I, I just wanted to like really give those things away to make them a gift and to turn them into love um, instead of like being angry about not having them to actually give them freely. And he gave me that opportunity big time. And at the end of the day, like that whole process of giving away my marriage, which yeah, it, it, like even just saying that it's a huge grace, but that whole process led me to like kind of what I found at the deepest part of my heart was a desire to preach and a desire to be a deacon and a desire to serve. So through looking at this this vocation that I love in, in marriage, that vocation actually revealed my vocation to me, um, which is the diaconate. So we're diaconate right now, you know, hopefully, obviously priesthood in the future, but was very affirmed. And really at the end of the day, it was just a strong sense that God is going to provide for me. Because like Rob said, and I'm sure you know, Father, um, like we have no clue what's coming down the pipe, and I have no idea what my diaconate's going to look like, what, well, I guess a little idea, or what our priesthood's going to look like the day-to-day, but just throughout all of that, like the Lord made it very clear, I'm going to provide. Like if, if you give yourself to me, I will never let you down. I'll never let you fail. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a very dramatic retreat, quite frankly. I had never really experienced something that um, roller coastery because I would come out of prayer and have these like intense moments where I'm kind of giving away my marriage and dudes are like laughing and joking and I'm like oh <laughs> what's <laughs> happening with me <laughs> but just having always being called back to and it was really looking over the Sea of Galilee where I um which is so incredible that like I even get to say that, but that's where I really felt Jesus saying like, no, this is, this is where I want you. I I want you right here with me because I'm here with you right here in this place and on this retreat. So yeah. And even just the sea of Galilee, it's honestly, his presence there is palpable. Like it's just, it's electric. You can picture yourself there and picture Jesus there. And, um, Today, you know, it's the chair of St. Peter, the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. And I walked down to Tagba, which is where the primacy of Peter was, the the triple, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me, with Peter. And, like, you get to imagine yourself being there in Peter's shoes as a part of that scene um, on the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter uh, on the Sea of Galilee. Like, these are unbelievable, literally unbelievable experiences that... I'm sure we'll have graces that unfold throughout the rest of my life, but it's really a a lot to take in. So that's just kind of like the thoughts that are on my heart and the experiences I've had the past week or so. Retreat was ridiculous Yeah. at the end of the day. The other kind of practical thing that the retreat, and I feel like this week in particular, we've had, um, I don't know, as far as experiencing Galilee, we've had like a little bit slower pace, but we're also coming off of this retreat but it allowed, like, I don't know, some of the other experiences of trip to sink in. At least for me, that was also, like, a grace in and of itself. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, 
I mean, this experience of culture, like how different it can be here. Um, I guess I was thinking back specifically to the Nativity Grotto, just how many people would come through there. Like I'd go and I'd sit in the corner for an hour. And I mean, there would be like, I mean, almost like groups from every continent, you know, that would come through and like take a picture at this spot or say a prayer at this spot or whatever. And so it was like, in its own sense, it was like very challenging to like be confronted with these cultures, challenging in the sense of like, I am not the center of the world, like at all. Um, but just kind of like this, I don't know, deepening awareness of like the core of our faith that God wanted to be with us and he sent Jesus and he was actually physically born at a certain moment in time at a certain place on this earth. And he like, lived and walked like we did and, you know, ended up dying for us and then rising from the dead. It's like that I believe more than I did two weeks ago. Hmm. And it's just like this surreal thing to take in of like how that happened. But that's pretty cool to be able to say that at the same time. So I don't even know if that makes sense, but like that's part of the grace I experienced, I think specifically on retreat, but I guess really kind of articulating that this week, even, um, I mean, it's just, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know how else to, to say it Hmm. besides that. Beautiful stuff guys. Yeah. I have some comments, yeah. but I'm a little nervous because although now I can hear you guys clearer than I could before, my I've get, I'm getting a pinwheel in my Skype and I'm worried that it's not recording. Uh-oh. So real quick, I only have about 20 more minutes. I got to get going at noon. Okay. But oh my gosh. Let me um let me close Skype, open it back up and call you back and just make sure okay. that this is recording. Okay. All right. Sorry. Relax. Okay, it was recording, but now I feel better. So, uh, awesome. Just awesome to hear you guys talk. It's actually kind of, it's funny hearing you guys, even though I've I've already made my commitment, I'm already a priest, just hearing you guys talk about how you feel leading up to sort of the biggest threshold is the deacon ordination, because that's it. That's, you know, the no going back time and um makes me nervous for you like you know what i mean uh just thinking like that is it that is a huge decision um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but a couple of things that reminds me of one I, I gave a talk the other night to chicago has this group called in search it's been around forever it's for guys out of college um in the work world who are thinking about priesthood so they meet once a month and they have talks and they pray together, they eat together, and the vocation director kind of leads it. And they invited me to give the first talk and for this uh, sort of spring cycle of InSearch. And um, did a little Q&A. It was a big group. I'd say there was like 20 guys there. Wow. And um, all from cool. different walks of life and sort of what you see in pre-theology, different ages, different backgrounds, different college majors and everything. Um, yeah. But there's one guy who's applying already. He's going next year, and he was he was talking about how he's more nervous now 
than he was ever about specifically celibacy and uh, that that commitment than he was any time when he was. It didn't ever seem like a big deal to him when it was just considering the priesthood. But now that he's going to the seminary, it's it's a little bit more intimidating. And he's like, do you have any advice about about that? And I'm like, because uh, I told kind of my story of when that that all fell into place when I went to IPF and kind of learned to pray. And like you were saying, Rob, you just know that Jesus is with you and um, you're not going to be alone. Because that's the, that's the great fear, I think, with celibacy is that I'm going to be alone and yeah. then I'll have no one to hang on to when I feel bad and no one will be thinking of me and I will be forgotten and, and whatever, all these lies. But once you have an experience of Christ and the certitude that like even even when you don't want to be around him he will continue to be want to be around you yeah and uh, real quick not to not yeah. to like break you up completely but even that's a that's a, also like a deeper way to i think articulate maybe the grace of like specifically the canonical retreat for me was that like i have noticed and even since then even the past couple of days how nervous i'm getting for ordination of like the finality of it and kind of everything that goes into it. And I mean, that's certainly there big time, but it's just, it's like become so concrete in that, like, Oh my gosh, if that's not true, like if that whole notion of I'm not going to be alone, isn't true, then this is not going to work, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so it's like, that was also deepened in a real way. And so it was just kind of hearing, like, for me in this, like, super gentle and simple way, it was kind of hearing one more time, like, very, um, very tangibly, you know, in my own heart, that it's like, no, I, I believe that's true, and I'm willing to stake, like, to stake this on it. And it was super simple and easy, and I like, got to re- recall a bunch of graces and specific, like, maybe more dramatic moments that got me there. Um, so that was part of like the, maybe the beauty of my retreat, but I just wanted to interject that of like nervousness. Holy cow. Cause there's also, the, I guess like the maturity that maybe comes with it is like just realizing that that has to be true. Um, or it's bad news. Yeah. And in a way, like even making a retreat, um, well, all of the things that, that sort of lead one to make a decision that to the outside world were it not for the existence of God would make no sense. And in some ways that's a good way to judge whether or not you're, you're truly living your vocation is like, would your life make sense still if God were not real? Like if the truth of Christianity um, was not true, would your life make any sense? Um, because if it if it does, then it's like you've hedged your bets, you know. Like, but even just investing five minutes of silent prayer, where you're not doing anything else, and you're not you're not like reading something that would, you know, enrich you, regardless of whether or not God was actually there to have a conversation with you, you know, just to just to like let go and sit, sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I had this insight when I was in college, when I made a goal to pray twenty minutes a day. Uh, just to go to the chapel and sit there. One of my first thoughts was if this, if I'm being duped, 
if this Eucharist is not actually Jesus, if Jesus is not actually God, then this is an utter waste of time. I'm, I'm like an idiot just sitting here um, pretending, making believe. Uh, and if I do this every day till the day I die, how many hours will I have wasted just sitting here doing this? But on the other hand, if it is true, which I believe it is, then there's no better use of my time. You know, like the, the other uses of my time will look stupid in, re, in comparison to it because, you know, I could be working or making money or, you know, enriching myself personally or professionally, but all that stuff's just going to pass away. But this is eternal. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like it's the same way with, with the vocation question. And this is kind of what I said to the guy. I, I borrowed a thing from Father Mike Schmitz about if you ask yourself three questions every day, you'll never, you, you'll never not know your vocation. Uh, the questions are, am I, am I in a state of grace? And if I'm not, go to confession, get into a state of grace. Have I prayed today? Um, Meaning just what I said, like that kind of prayer that it's absolutely free of, you know, utility. It's just pure relational communion with God. And have I done my daily duties? You know, so if, if I'm a college student, have I gone to class, done my homework, studied for tests? If I'm, you know, working at a company, have I given my all? Have I done a just day's work for a just wage you know um but if you if you fail in any of those three things that's when you kind of go off the rails and you wake up one morning and you feel depressed and you're like i must be in the wrong vocation or i must be doing the wrong thing or i need a big life change to make me happy but in fact you're just either not in a state of grace or you haven't prayed today or you're you know not doing what you're supposed to be doing in your current state in life and uh And I just said, you know, if you do those things, you're not going to end up in the wrong one. You're not going to like wake up one day after six years of seminary and be like, oh, crap, I'm doing I did the wrong one. and God duped me. You know, it's it doesn't work that way. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, even though coming up to the end and you might you guys might still encounter some kind of resistance or interior or exterior um, to making that leap, you know, but it's not a blind leap. It's not you. You don't have no information. You you have this person that you've related to for years, and you you know you can count on. And the one last thing I have to say is, you know, a couple was it last week or two weeks ago? All the daily mass readings were from Genesis, <clears throat> going through the creation to the fall to mm-hmm. Noah. Um, and one morning it was the the fall of Adam and Eve, or it almost it was the setup where God makes all the trees and he says, you can eat from all these trees, but just not this one. And as I was praying about it in the morning, kind of thinking of something to say for the homily, <clears throat> I was like, this all seems like a big setup, you know? Like how if you put a kid in a room full of toys and you said, you can play with any toy you want except this one, and then just put it right in the middle of the room and said, don't even mm-hmm. touch it or you'll die. <laughs> like the kid is not going to be able to play He's only going to be thinking about that one toy he can't touch. Right. Now, that's because we're all sinners. And that's, you know, like I don't think for Adam and Eve in their state of original justice, it would have been hard for them to just take God at his word and say like, okay, just we're not going to touch that one. But look at all the stuff we get to enjoy. And it's only mm-hmm. because we're 
we've fallen and we have this interior and inherent distrust of God that we think like, maybe if I broke his law, that would make me happier. Um, so maybe they weren't struggling with that, but it's still, in, in some sense, this feels like a setup to me. And the image I had in my mind was like he'd set them up on some high pillar or, or cliff. And it was just like they were barely clinging to the side. And they were just destined to fall um, into the sin and into all the misery that followed it with Cain and Abel and then the, the flood and all the years of, you know, wandering in the desert and all this stuff that happened because man and woman wandered from God. Um, it just seemed unfair until I realized, as I was thinking about it, I kind of like put myself up on that cliff. And I'm like, the, the true danger here is not that one would fall from here, but that one wouldn't jump. Like, I feel like the sin of Adam and Eve, at least as it manifests itself in my own life, is a clinging, is a, is a, is a slavery. It's a unwillingness to move um, when you're called to, you know, which is why they, they shrink down and, and cover themselves and hide in the garden. And all the results of guilt and shame are are not an, I mean, it starts with an overreach, but it, it ends with a, a certain fear and, and paralysis, really. Um, whereas, like, the true freedom of the sons of God is, is a leap. And again, not just like a blind faith, I'm going to believe in something even though I can't see it, even though evidence exists to the contrary. But really, like, the same way a person stands in, f- in front of an altar and looks another person in the eye and says, uh, you know, I promise my life to you in marriage, no matter what comes, even if you get sick, even if whatever happens, we go bankrupt. And, like we are yoked together forever. And I can't tell what's in your heart. I don't know for a fact. I can't prove scientifically that you are who you say you are, but I believe it. I trust you and you trust me and we're going, you know, whatever happens. That's the yep. exact same thing I felt like happened in ordination was that I'd had enough of experiences of the person of God that I could say with uh, the kind of certainty that on this side of heaven you can have in God, the kind of faith you can have that I'm with you, you know, and I know that you'll be with me. Um, and Dude, that's, that's it. Now that's very beautiful. It reminds me when uh, Father Karchi was my spiritual director he would, when I was kind of going through the crux of my uh, discernment in the seminary was when he was my spiritual director. And he used to tell me, and he meant like exactly what you're saying. And I always got that. And I always really appreciated it of like the thought of ordination. Um, and I guess really specifically diaconate. Yeah. Like those initial promises and commitment. Um, the the recklessness of that should should thrill you and they should scare you a little bit about like stepping out into the unknown but at the like even deeper than that there should just be this like this thrill or excitement or i don't you know even those kind of fall short of maybe the right word for it but it's exactly the same thing of a guy who is in love with a girl he wants to marry and has had enough like encounters and experience of her that she wants to, that he wants to like commit and go all in, come, come what be, you know, he, 
he, he's going for this because he's found the love that he wants. Like, he knows how he wants to give himself away. And that literally describes, I mean, any good discernment. I think you could say that for, you know, going to seminary or whatever. Like, you don't have to think about ordination. Like, does the thought of seminary kind of thrill you? Like, the recklessness of it, um, come what be, priesthood or not. But, you know, at this point, it's just like, the is rare, and it is, it is scary. Um, but, my gosh, it's like... Heck yeah! When, when you're there, um, and not not that you're worthy or even like ready for it, but it's just like, no, let's let's do it. Yeah, and, and I I think in some ways like getting actually getting closer to ordination, and seminary is just in some way it seems like it, it's been going on forever, and you're like, wow, they're just we receive so much formation and so much attention and honestly pressure of um, like pressure from all these different places. You're connected with a bunch of different people that in some way become uh, dependent upon you and all these organizations like your archdiocese, Knights of Columbus, you just become affiliated and in relationship with a lot of people. And there's just, you become a public person. And I think there's, there's weight that comes with that. And, um, and so I think in seminary, like, the thing that I've realized so much through formation, um, which I think my ordination will hopefully be an expression of this, and it was something that you just said that kind of triggered this this reality to me, was like when you come up and you make those promises, those public commitments, you're not making a, a blind jump of faith off of a cliff, but it's much more like you're being bound to a person. And I think what we're going to be saying at ordination, what you also said at ordination and what brides and bridegrooms say at their marriages is I am dependent on you. Like who I am, what I do on a day to day basis is entirely bound up in your business and your business is entirely bound up in me. And together, like I am yoked with you. And I think more than anything, my time in seminary has made me realize that like that is the reality now. I am radically dependent on God. Not of um, like it, you just see how much how much I need Him. That's kind of what I realized is I can seriously do nothing without Him. And so what I'm coming to realize in ordination is that when I get up and make those promises, that it's much more a, an exterior manifestation of a reality that I've come to throughout seminary. And I think that was really the big grace for me in retreat is like realizing, yeah, I am so in need of you. And that's what I want to say. Like, that's what I want to live by is this reality that I am dependent on you, God, which is a really remarkable thing. Um, so yeah, something that you said just triggered me to that. I don't know if that, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, you said you're yoked, but truly I'm the one who's yoked. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be yoked very soon. Something else you said, Juice, earlier created a humorous image in my mind. When you said you were sitting for an hour watching people go through the nativity grotto yeah. from all the different continents. 
I was picturing people from all the different continents, and then I thought of Antarctica, and then just like this gr- <laughs> group of penguins with cameras around their necks, <laughs> w- the waddling down. <laughs> yeah, Eskimo- Eskimos come waddling in. You're like, wow, this is a really diverse crowd. Yeah, <laughs> they're really funneling through here. My gosh. Well, I had a crazy weekend. I was in yeah. Maryland at Mount 2000, which is this big youth summit retreat thing. I had like 1,300 kids there. <whistles> I was invited. Remember Blake from Peoria? Yeah. Yeah, he went back. Uh, you know, the Peoria guys pulled out of Mundelein, went back to Mount the Mount, and um, he was in charge of this retreat. Now, he's since uh, discerned out of the seminary, but he had invited me like over a year ago to go out there and celebrate masses for the kids, kind of like the principal celebrant for the masses and the homilist and stuff. So I had to give two homilies, one on Friday, one on Saturday, and heard a lot of confessions. But it was awesome, dude. <clears throat> Every time cool. I do stuff like this, like I did that Lenten mission down in Arizona last March, and it's sort of like you, you come in cold and you're all nervous and you have no idea what to expect. Speaking of kind of what we're talking about, it's like you're just with this person and you're like, okay, I guess we're going here now. Um, to just ha- just to feel like, um, to feel like a priest, like, wow, this, this is a fruitfulness of my, like to hear confessions of these kids who are, you know, how old I was when I first started reading the Bible with my dad and first started like, just to have an inkling that this stuff mattered, that this person, Jesus was real. And, um, to just be there as like kind of a, a father, figure slash midwife or just like somebody to just sort of push them to the next step to say like even I think the biggest thing that I did was just to witness with the fact that I was a young priest and could tell stories about that time in my life about high school like just the awkwardness of it and um it was awesome but anyway I came back and feel very uh rejuvenated and um I don't know how that relates, but I just wanted to kind of share that. No, that is awesome. Yeah. I you have you a lot of up with that stuff. I well, yeah, well, I don't know. It was I was well received. I, I felt kind of self conscious to be honest with you because like the rector of the seminary is like concelebrating while I am the principal celebrant. It just feels like what the who the heck am I? You know, <laughs> you just get pushed into these into these roles sure. like you're saying it the kind of public person thing. Um, or, and what's also amazing to me is just how much God has done with me, like that you would never expect. This is the other part of, of letting him kind of take control of your life. Um, like to be able to get up in front of 1300 teenagers uh, mm. and just not be nervous at all and just tell stories and, and preach the gospel that I'm capable of doing that is not anything that I earned or worked at or any, I mean, it was just, it's just pure grace, the Holy spirit. Um, so, so was there any like one particular grace from that experience? Well, a lot of it was a confession, so I can't really talk about, but, um, yeah, yeah. Dude, just give us some, give us, <laughs> <laughs> don't even joke about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, one particular grace, No, not really. I mean, just just praying with the nuns and stuff, like all these, all these young sisters and seminarians, and um, 
I don't know. It's just like it's like that old uh, analogy of the charcoals. You get them all together and it creates this, you know, self-sustaining fire. If you hmm. fling the charcoals off individually off to different parts of the, the land, they'll die out. But if you get them all together and that's how, that's how I, that was my first homily to the kids was like, you know, my greatest fear as a teenager was being an awkward, unfunny loser with no friends. And when I was reading the Bible with my dad, I was like, the last thing I was going to do was walk around high school with my Bible in my hand saying, hey, you guys ever heard of Jesus? I really love him. Because um, that's, that's a surefire way to end up an awkward loser with no friends. Um, <laughs> but I was like, you know, at a place like this, you're, the great thing about being here is you're safe, you know, that we can unembarrassedly and unashamedly kneel down before Jesus in the blessed sacrament and say, we all believe this regardless of what the world says. Um, or if this looks ridiculous to whoever we're here and we believe it and, and we're open to him, you know, and God addressing us and calling us and, and everything like that. And just to see the kids like, come, you know, at first when you're, when you're given a homily to 1300 kids in a gym, you don't even see their faces, you know, you see one or two, um, but then to just stand there and the other thing I've, I've learned as a priest is to just, um, I mean, it happens moment by moment. I mean, the big moment is like laying down with your face on the marble and promising your life to God, like you guys are about to do in ordination. But every single day, every single moment, you have to choose it again to be for the people, to be for God, first of all, but his instrument to relate to his people, you know? So like one kid, for instance, this I can share, um, was from El Salvador. I just started talking to this kid. He was kind of quiet. I actually sat next to him in one of the breakout sessions and he had his elbow like all over my armrest. And I was kind of annoyed by that. I'm like, this kid, this kid totally doesn't want to be here. He's not singing. He's not, you know, participating. And how you make just sort of a blanket judgment of somebody without talking to them. But later on, we ended up, I ended up seeing him walking around and sort of, um, He's just a kind of a quiet kid, Hispanic, and and I go up to him and I introduce myself. And he's from El Salvador. He uh, came here, um, you know, and his family were, you know, victims of the Civil War back, you know, in the 80s. His parents were orphaned by it and and things like. Just had a really tough background. Was from a part of uh, the East Coast where uh, there's a lot of gang stuff in school, and he just said, you know just not at all how I grew up feeling safe and and nurtured and everything. Like he had, he just not had any of that. And he said to me at one point, he's like, I don't know how this came up, but he's like, I've never hugged my dad. Hmm. Um, and I just let him talk. I was just listening and stuff like that. But I, I just thought at the, at the end of it, I was like, well, can I give you a hug? And he's like, yeah, man, you can give me a hug. (laughs) And I just hugged him. And it's like, I don't know what that meant to him. But I've heard stories of like my aunt when she was struggling, she wasn't a Catholic, a priest giving her a hug was like this thing that just drew her into RCIA and now she's a Eucharistic minister and she, you know, brings communion to to people in nursing homes and stuff. You know, like it all started with just a priest giving her a hug. And I've heard from one of my parishioners here who is from Guatemala, who felt really scared and didn't know what, the language and what was going on. And she went to the church and she was a young girl and and this priest was just really uh, open to her and, and friendly and learned her name and gave her a hug. And she, when she was telling me about this hug, she was crying. Like it was 
you know, 30 years ago and it still was this big moment for her. And now she's super involved in the church and, and loves God. And like, sometimes I think that as the pre, one of the priest's biggest job is to just stand in for Christ and be there so that people know he cares about them. Um, and so just putting myself in people's way and, and to not, I mean, the temptation to vanity is huge when you're like a rock star. I, 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 fortunately, I had the grace of really feeling like this was an inappropriate amount of attention I was getting. I'm just a pure parish priest ordained two and a half years. Like I'm not Father Mike Schmitz. I'm not Bishop Barron. Uh, but for some reason, because I knew Blake, <laughs> I got picked to do this. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't too tempted to get a huge head about it. But the biggest thing, though, is to just like to not use people, to not like say, because all these people are are listening to me that I'm so interesting or important. But to like, yeah, I preached my job right now is to is to give this message and I'm going to do it the best I can and, and relate to people as best I can. And if people enjoy it and if people praise me for it, great. But the, the biggest way to to combat any um, temptation to pride or to using people to feed my own ego, using people's attention to feed myself is to just go out and like, you know, okay, so these teenagers are standing out in the grass talking. So go up to them and talk to them, you know, and learn about them and care about them rather than just mm. bask in the glory of them paying attention to me, you know? So that was a grace. The whole weekend was just really full of grace. And, uh, just to hear you guys talking about coming up on this, it's just, you want to share it with people, you know? Um, and I, I wouldn't, the last thing I want to do is push anybody into the priesthood that's not called or, or feels reticent, but I do firmly believe in this, this sort of leap thing. Like you have to remember that analogy you had about skydiving or like the, some people need a push out of the plane for your airborne training, Mike. Yeah. Like, yeah. Some people just need somebody to tell them like, go, it'll be better. Trust me. Riding, riding around in this plane with a parachute on doesn't really make a lot of sense unless you're going to jump. Um, so, yeah, I'm taking a group of high school kids up this afternoon. That's why I have to get going pretty soon to St. Nice. Joe's Seminary. I'm going to St. Mass, oh, for, cool. Saint Mass yeah. for these high school kids who are part of a program in the archdiocese to, to discern whether or not to go to seminary after high school. And so taking five of our they're kids. From your parents? Well, they're from all over the arch, but uh, I invited five kids specifically from my youth group and parish cool. to Sweet. check it out. Very cool. Yeah. And you know, it's, I guess something that I'm just picking up is like, I can legitimately hear your excitement in the life from not just this weekend, but from priesthood and like your sharing and our excitement. I appreciate that a lot. Um, I generally feed on emotion, so it really does mean <laughs> a lot and I, I pick it up pretty quick. Um, but it's, it's, I can, I mean, obviously it's authentic coming mm -hmm. from you. So even two and a half years, you know, I don't know if you would say you're still in the honeymoon phase there, but no, I'd say um, I'm, now I'm finally like getting ramped up into the, into the, okay, this is kind of what I'm, I, I mean, who knows what's going to happen to me in five years or 10 years or, or whatever. And, and in some ways I don't want to know, and I don't care to try to engineer anything for myself career wise. It's kind of odious to me. Um, but I do feel now like, like for instance, I'll just give you my, my week at a glance right now. So I'm going up to, I'm taking these high school kids to look at the seminary and give them the, a tour with the Jesuits, with the, 
with the diocese and um tomorrow i'm teaching an rcia class i got to get that ready um which i've been doing friday i'm getting ready this alpha thing for the youth group um saturday i'm doing an evening of recollection for the rcia group because they're going up on the next day to the cathedral for the right of election with cardinal supich and then monday i have to get a second class ready i'm starting this eight eight week course i started on monday uh for the lay formation group i'm teaching at saint xavier uh eight two-hour classes on ecclesiology and and then Ash Wednesday's next week, so I get kind of Tuesday as a little bit of a break. But like now, after two and a half years, after getting my STL done, I just I I've settled into certain things that I'm doing, where I feel like at first when you're ordained, the honeymoon is cool, but you you're sort of like I have no idea what I'm doing, you know, <laughs> like the church has existed for two thousand years without me. Now what do they need me to do, <laughs> you know? Um, but you realize, like, I think when you settle in for a few years, like I have, where God has, what gifts God has given you, where God has put you in life and in the world to, to announce the kingdom. And uh, that's where I kind of feel like I'm at now. But it took time. And it'll take time for you guys. I mean, you have no, there's, we talked about this too, there's no practicing for lifelong commitments. You know, mm-hmm. like people living with each other to test out whether they're compatible. It's like the, it, you just don't know what it's going to be like to be in a lifelong commitment where everything in your identity and your personality is is uh, is directed at this good or this person or or yeah pleasing this person or serving this person until you do it until you make the promise. Um, but it's exciting, and I'm glad I uh, you're feeding off my whatever emotion. Maybe next week, if we talk next week, you'll be like, boy, are you? Okay, you sound horrible. (laughs) (laughs) But at least this week I feel good. And another thing. How long were you all in Jerusalem? Was it five weeks? I think it was five weeks. Wow. Maybe not. Maybe maybe the whole pilgrimage was five weeks. But the majority majority was spent in Jerusalem. Gotcha. Okay, things that are like musts or strong suggestions in Jerusalem. Not just places to go, but like... um, Things to do. The water heater thing was a huge suggestion, stuff like that. Oh, okay. Um, well, I was going to say the must is get up early and go to the Holy Sepulchre at like 3 in the morning or 3.30 in the morning to try to get yeah. in to some masses inside the tomb. These Franciscans, the same thing Seth Brown told me. Yeah. yeah, these Franciscans go in and say mass because the Catholics, I think, get it really early in the morning. There's a there's a Latin mass. I mean, it's a Novus Ordo mass in Latin because it's people from all around the world go at like 7 or something like that every day where but you you know people sit outside they bring benches and put them outside the tomb for the people to sit in while the priest is in the tomb offering the mass but if you go earlier kind of individual priests will go say their personal mass inside the tomb and if you're just sitting there you can be like hey can we go in there with you but there's really room for like three so me and scott would do it and there's really room for just three people a priest and two servers or two people wow it's tiny yeah it's really tiny but the Holy Sepulchre was by far my most favoriteest part. Things to other practical things. Um, I mean, I found a laundromat. It was pretty easy. It was, it was kind of cool. The, uh, the laundromat people ask your name, and then they write your name on a ticket or whatever, or a bag and they, when they give you your laundry back. And um, I got my laundry, and it had just some Hebrew letters on it. Because I told them my name's Connor, and they get, and they're like, okay, and they give me this bag, and it it just was written in Hebrew, and I was like, is that my name in Hebrew? And uh, 
I took it to somebody. I think I took the like piece of, piece of paper off of it or something, and I showed it to someone who spoke English and Hebrew at like a food place or ice cream place or something. And I was like, "What does this say?" And she goes, "Connor." And I was like, "Wow!" And I didn't I didn't save the sheet. I should have because then I'd know how to write my name in Hebrew. But I find a laundry <laughs> place, uh, which is pretty easy. Dude, have you not seen our laundry line in our room? No, I did say that actually. Yeah. Yeah. Are you washing your clothes in the sink or what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, all the places over here, if you if you get the hotel to do it, it's, it's just big, crazy expensive. Yeah. Same expensive. thing at Notre yeah. Dame Center. Yeah, you got to find yep. a laundromat. Okay. But the laundromat's yeah, there. It's not like you're you're not sitting there waiting for your laundry to get done. You just dump a bunch of dirty laundry. They do it for you. You pay them for it. You go and pick it yeah. up. Yeah. Hey. Oh, wait. Do you remember how expensive it was? Not very expensive. Not very. Okay. Nice. It's pretty cool in Jerusalem how everything uh, closes Friday night at sundown. Uh, hmm. And it's just like a ghost because they keep holy the Sabbath day. It's pretty wild. So you go to the Western Wall on the Sabbath when the Sabbath starts. That was very impressive to see everybody gathering for the Jewish Sabbath. Um, yeah. So much to see, man. I love Jerusalem. That was the place where I felt like I could have lived there for a year. Okay. Really? Yeah. Dude, awesome. Cool. And you can walk just about everywhere? Oh, uh, yeah, I did. I went running. I mean, it's sort of like um, anytime you're a tourist or a visitor somewhere, you end up kind of going to places or knowing places that people who've lived there forever don't go to or don't know about because... Right. So I went running a few times and you go through like the nice sort of upscale part of town uh, where mostly um, Jewish citizens live. And then I would also ran through like the Kidron Valley, which is a lot more poor, um, more Palestinian area. And uh, I don't think they see a lot of people going for runs over there. And maybe that's more of an American thing to do workouts. (laughs) They had a funny thing. We joked about how people would call out just randomly while you were running and be like, hey, look at that sport. Oh, God, you guys are playing a sport. I was like, this isn't a sport. (laughs) It's just going for a run. Anyways, you called a lot of attention to yourself while you were running, but in the Kidron Valley, especially with the little Palestinian kids, I got things thrown at me, like not rocks, but like bottles of pop and things like that. They just like, they run after you and laugh and throw things at you. I was like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be here. <laughs> that didn't, no harm, no foul. We had, we had a rock thrown at us down, down in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem one night, yeah. yeah. We were walking, walking back from something, and it was the same. It, I, it was, it was kids like jacking around, yeah. but they came close to hitting us. You, you um, haven't they really been in the Holy Land if you haven't had a rock thrown at you. That's true. That's that true. is true. Good point. Yeah. Good point. That is true. I mean, look at David. Back. Remember when David's marching out of Jerusalem in shame after was it Absalom was kind of creating favor and trying to get troops to take over. And, was, and similar to us, he says, no, let them throw rocks. Exactly. If the Lord actually sent them. Mm-hmm. Who am I? One of my favorite parts of the Old Testament right there. Book of Samuel. Mm. All right. Well, dude, Zors, say a prayer for me. I'll be praying for you. All right, man. Keep it sleazy. Yeah, we can definitely do that. I will. Uh, yeah, just when you get to Jerusalem, if you get some good Wi-Fi. And this has been excellent. This whole conversation sound wise and Wi-Fi wise. There was one little hiccup with Rob, but I could hear everything you said. So Nice. Okay, but there was nothing with me, right? No. 
I well, I, yeah, I'm gonna okay, I'm good. gonna go ahead and take away my permissions on this, and we're gonna scrap it. Okay, I kind of muted mm-hmm. Mike for most of it, though. Oh, okay, never mind. You muted your mic. <laughs> that was foolish. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.